Good morning and a very warm welcome for me. I'm conscious of the fact that time is cracking on, so uh, do forgive me this morning if, if I try and stick to my script a little bit, um, just to try and keep myself on track as we move uh, through uh, the message this morning. Um, today we start in the first in a, a short mini-series that we're calling Great Prayers of the Bible as a sort of closer to the Fabulous Prayer Festival that we've just had. And over the next few weeks, we'll be looking at some of the famous prayers that were spoken in the Bible and uh, seeing what we continue to learn from them. But I wonder, what do you think makes a great prayer? As young people, we spent the last few weeks learning to pray with each other online. Uh, when we started, we discussed the kind of things that helped and hindered us praying together in a group. And at least a couple of us talked about being worried that they wouldn't know how to pray the right thing or have the right words to say or that somehow our prayer just wouldn't be good enough. But of course, prayer doesn't have to be long or theologically astute or even necessarily well crafted. It could be all of those things. But the most important thing is that it comes from our heart and it's directed towards God's heart. Because prayer is very much a heart-to-heart to communication as much as it is anything else. So as I was preparing for this morning, I was thinking about some of the truly great prayers I've heard over the years. You know the ones, those ones that you wish you'd prayed yourself. Um, and as I read around this prayer of Solomon's recorded in two chronicles, I was reminded of a situation I experienced some years ago, which yielded one of the best prayers I think I've ever heard. Now, in chapter five of two Chronicles, just before the reading that we've just had, we get the account of the glory of the Lord filling the temple in such a way that the priests couldn't continue their work because a cloud had settled on the place. And the same thing happens in chapter seven after he's prayed. Glory of the Lord comes down. The cloud fills the temple and uh, the priests can't minister. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never experienced the glory cloud of God. But I have experienced a number of occasions where the presence of God came in such a powerful way that we just had to stop what we were doing and stand in awe. It was an occasion like this that gave rise to the prayer I'm thinking of. Now, I'd had a couple of um, young adult interns working with me um, for the summer, and we've been speaking and leading worship at an outdoor Christian event. And after the main meeting had finished, uh, a few of us stayed on in the garden that had served as our outdoor meeting space uh, just to respond to some of the things that we'd heard and to continue in our worship. And the presence of God came so powerfully that it was really hard to stand. It was like the whole garden was suddenly full of power, of glory, if you like, like an invisible weight was resting on us, almost like... Gravity had somehow increased in that moment, and it was into this incredible situation that one of the interns spoke this great prayer. And as we stood there, barely breathing in the holiness of that moment, she turned to me, her eyes wide open, and uttered the deeply theological, reverential words. Flipping. And somehow in that moment, those two words captured everything that needed to be said. They're full of awe at the presence of God. They were full of wonder at his goodness and his closeness. They contained a sense of our smallness and our need of him. 
and a sense of delight and joy at his imminent father was in that garden with his children. Two words that were more than just an exclamation, but somehow captured the moment and directed it back in beautiful worship. Flipping heck. Best prayer ever. But back to Solomon, what I think makes his prayer great. He certainly uses a lot more eloquent words than my friend did, but in essence, I think it breaks down into these four parts. Firstly, it acknowledges the transcendence of God, that fact that God is so much bigger than us, our plans and our schemes, the fact that he's above and beyond our world, as Matt was sharing with us earlier. Secondly, it acknowledges that God makes this covenant of love with his people. The third thing I want to pick up is the fact that it acknowledges our sinful nature and our need for forgiveness. And lastly, it recognises that God's love and compassion extends to all peoples everywhere. So if you've got your Bible handy, grab it, open it to 2 Chronicles 6. And uh, let's have a look at the context of the reading and what we've heard and see what we can learn this morning. I'm going to jump around a little bit. So if you want to have um, 2 Chronicles open, um, I don't have time to read every passage that I'm going to allude to, so you might want to just skim read a little bit as I talk. But let's think about this occasion of Solomon's prayer and the dedication of the temples. So this is the first permanent structure ever set up to help the Israelites focus their worship of the Lord. Up to that time, collective worship's been focused on the temporary structure of Moses' tabernacle or the tent that David pitched for it on, uh, on Mount Zion. Uh, but now, following the plan that his father had given him, Solomon, who's now king, has spent seven years and a vast sum of money building this permanent structure. It's a massive focus of time and resources, and the end result is this magnificent structure that they've just completed. But everything about this structure is designed to point us toward a higher reality. All the imagery that's used in its design, all its furnishings, Everything about it is designed to point us towards God. And the physical form that we see, impressive though it is, is not the important thing. The important thing is the reality of God himself is high above every earthly attempt to express him. And Solomon's acutely aware of this. And even though he's just spent a huge chunk of his life and a massive amount of resources on the place, he prays in verse 18, but will God really dwell on earth with humans? The heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. You see, Solomon knows that the Lord is not a God that can be contained or constrained in any of the structures or styles of worship that we built for him. Eight times in the following verses, Solomon asked that when his people pray, God would hear from heaven. Demonstrates again his understanding of the fact that God's not confined to this temple that they've just built for him. We can't package him up or box him in. And he won't be made to respond to the patterns or structures we put in place. He's bigger than that. He's God and we're not. He's seeking after a people who in humility seek after him with a genuine heart and devotion. Not in a ritualistic response. 
And it's awareness we need to constantly strive to cultivate in the kingdom of God and the work of the church. We're a busy people at Creech, um, if you haven't noticed. Someone asked me the other day, you know, uh, how I was enjoying having so much less to do. Um, and I had to confess that, that honestly, I'm not sure I've noticed that much difference. There's a lot of things going on. But we're involved in a lot of really intensive, labor-intensive, time-consuming initiatives, uh, like a lot of churches are. And there's a constant threat to us that the work that we do and the activity we're involved in starts to become more important than the one that we're actually trying to worship through it. You know, you can always tell when that's starting to happen in a church because you find yourself praying more about the services that you're putting on or the ministries that you're involved in um, than you do simply spending time seeking the face of God and longing for his presence. When you're working together to accomplish the task, ends up becoming more important than just being together and seeking after him. It should set alarm bells ringing for us. And we, when we start measuring the success at of a fellowship by the quantifiable results that we achieve, like how many bums on seats have we got or or how many people have we managed to, to share the gospel with this week, rather than the sometimes less tangible spiritual dynamic that we're about. We need to ask ourselves whether we've got the balance wrong. Now, don't hear me wrong, because I'm acutely aware of the fact that the Apostle James teaches us that, that faith and works is a hand-in-hand partnership. I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't be involved in doing good works or working together even towards being as professional as we can or governing ourselves really efficiently. But what I'm saying is that if those things, those those outworkings become our priority, then we're in danger of becoming a really creative beautiful, efficient-looking organisation that ends up devoid of the presence of the one who called us as his people. So let's make sure when we, we're doing anything in church, when we're using our ministries, when we're making ourselves available, that actually we've always got our minds set on heavenly things, not on earthly things. Which leads me to the second point about Solomon's Prayer. And it's this, that God's covenant with us isn't based on the things that we do. It's a covenant of love he makes with his people. God's worthy of our very best and more. He deserves to be honest with the best that we can give him, with our time, our talents, our energy, our finances and all of our resources. But his covenant with us is not based on any of those things. It's based on his love for us. Solomon and the Israelites have just made this massive investment in building the temple. But all of their service and sacrifice isn't some kind of persuader to earn God's favour. It's a response to his loving kindness expressed to them. You know, the singers at the dedication of that temple twice sang a song at that festival that declared the truth that he is good and his love endures forever. He's good and his love endures forever. The most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16, declares that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believed in him might not die, but have eternal life, not because we deserved it or we'd earned it, not because we were good boys and girls, because on the contrary, the book of Romans tells us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
God's covenant with us was always based on his love for us. And the covenant sealed in the blood of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for us is always an expression of love. And God's desire from us as our part of this covenant is that we simply accept that love expressed through Jesus' sacrifice and in awe and wonder that all this incredible God has done for us, we love him back. Now, I accept that we can spend our lifetimes figuring out what it means and all that entails, but the beautiful simplicity of God's plan, God is love, and we're made to be loved and to love in return. Which brings me to my third point in Solomon's prayer, which is this truth that we are sinners in need of forgiveness. You know, much of the imagery that was used in the construction of the temple was designed to both express God's otherness, his holiness, to also to point back to the truth and reality of a time when God made mankind in his image and walked in loving communion and sinless innocence with him in the Garden of Eden. If, if you're not familiar with, with some of the construction of the temple, just have a read around uh, some of Chronicles and see how they built this place and how it speaks um, as a reminder of, of some of this stuff I'm going to talk about. You know, when Adam and Eve sinned back in the garden and were cast out of the Garden of Eden, they went into the east and cherubim with a flaming sword were positioned to, to guard the entrance to Eden so that they couldn't sneak back in. So the temple was designed so that it's facing east, and archaeologists will tell you that they could always tell when they found an, an ancient Jewish temple, the ruins of an ancient Jewish temple or something, because it's only the Jewish ones that were constructed in that orientation that they faced towards the east. So as you entered the temple, as you come into it, you come in from the east side and you head it towards the, the west. And as you did that, your journey took you symbolically back towards the Garden of Eden, back to that reminder of a time when you could walk in the cool of the evening with God in the garden. And as you did that, you met in the outer court by the altar of sacrifice and a giant brass sea, a huge great bowl full of water, which was used in, in various ceremonial washings. And both of these spoke in a way... Uh, of the consequence of our sin and a need for sacrifice, a cost to our sinner and a need for cleansing from it. And as the journey through the temple progressed, you get an increasing awareness of the holiness of God until you finally meet that holy of holies, where once a year, to symbolise the, the specialness, the uniqueness of that occasion, the high priest, having symbolically purified himself and been robed in special garments, got to enter the most holy place, the inner sanctuary, where God's presence is manifested over the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant, guarded by two huge cherubim statues. All of this is pointing us back to that beautiful time where we shared relationship with God before things went wrong. And the, the walls of this whole place are, are covered in hammered gold. Imagine that. Imagine the inside of Creech Church, covered in hammered gold, um, speaking of the majesty of heaven and, and, and the king of all the earth. And it's decorated with heavenly images and designs and flowers 
and trees as reminders of that time when heaven met earth in that garden. All of this imagery reminded the worshipper of their fallen state and their need for forgiveness from sin and had returned to his presence. You know, I often think in our modern world, sin is something that's largely been eroded. That's a fairly obvious statement to make. But sin's now become a term that largely means anything that I wouldn't do. So we can justify ourselves with the idea that we're as good as the next person or that I'm basically good. And it's those other guys over there that do all of that stuff that I would never do. They're the ones that really deserve punishment. But Solomon, in his prayer, is acutely aware that sin isn't measured by comparing ourselves to other people's behaviour. But in seeing ourselves in the light of God's holiness, in verse 36, he acknowledges when they, your people, that is, sin against you. For there's no one who does not sin. And as the, the New Testament Romans puts it, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. He recognises that sin will have a consequence. And throughout his prayer, he weaves in all these circumstances in which God's people may turn to him in prayer. And almost all of them are a consequence of them sinning against the Lord in some way and finding that their sin has led to their exile or their captivity or a plague or a famine or a drought or enemies overcoming them. Sin's always got a consequence, but Solomon asked that whenever people might turn to God in prayer, especially when it's motivated by a sense of their own sinfulness, even if it's because of a consequence of that sin, that God would remember his covenant of love and hear his people cries. And in verse 39 he said, From heaven, your dwelling place, hear their prayer and their praise, uphold their cause and forgive your people, who've sinned against you. Now, how much more effective is this covenant made through Jesus' sacrifice? You know, Jesus once famously referred to his earthly body as a temple. John chapter 2 records a time when he made a whip out of cords and drove from the temple courts, the later temple, that is, both sheep and cattle, scattered the coins of the money changers, and he overturned their tables. And to those who sold doves, He said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. Effectively, Jesus totally disrupted the mechanism of sacrifice and offering at that time. And when he was challenged by the religious leaders about whether he had the authority to do this, he replied famously, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. The Jews thought he meant the temple building and started arguing about the fact that that couldn't be done. But of course, Jesus wasn't referring to their physical building, but to his body and his eventual crucifixion and resurrection. And there's a prophetic element to this whole episode because Jesus had come to establish a new covenant. In his blood, the scripture tells us, by his sacrifice to do away with the need for any of these other sacrifices, any of the rituals of the temple. As the book of Hebrews said, his blood speaks a better word effectively than every other sacrifice that's ever been made. His body is the temple that couldn't be destroyed. And in disrupting the old order of things, Jesus speaks about this new covenant. 
he's come to prove the validity of this new covenant. God raises his temple, his body, to eternal and incorruptible life. And I want to read us a few verses from Hebrews that, that just kind of illustrates this. Hebrews 7 says, The Lord has sworn and he will not change his mind. You, that is Jesus, are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become a guarantor of a better covenant. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office, but because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore he's able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. He goes on to say such a high priest truly meets our need, one who's holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men in all their weakness, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son, who has been made perfect forever. And in recognising that Jesus is more than just a good man, more than just a teacher, in recognising his transcendence, the greater reality that his body was literally the dwelling or temple of the Most High God. It's literally, he is literally God in flesh. We can be absolutely assured that when we turn from our sin, we repent and we ask for forgiveness and rescue God from heaven, his dwelling place. Here's our prayers and our pleas and upholds our cause and forgives us, us who sinned against him. What a fantastic and a glorious truth. We have Jesus here and he intercedes for us, hearing our prayer and asking for our forgiveness. But I'm going to be quick now. There's just one final thought from Solomon's prayer that I want to pick up on. And it's this. You see, God always intended his salvation to be for all people in all places. He may have set his name, effectively his ownership, his election on the people of Israel. He may have made his covenant of love with them. But his promise to Abraham always was, through your descendants, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Now, by the time of Jesus, the Jews had come to see a huge distinction between themselves and the Gentile nations around them and among them. And the only way for a Gentile to stand any chance of getting close to God was to become a convert to Judaism, be circumcised and take part in all the sacrifices and offerings prescribed by the law. But as a descendant of Abraham, Solomon does something that reveals God's inclusive heart for all that he's made. And he prays this prayer. In verse 32, he prays this incredible prayer in the Old Testament. As for the foreigner who does not belong to your people, Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched heart. When they come and pray toward this temple, then, Lord, hear from heaven your dwelling place. Do whatever that foreigner asks of you so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your own people Israel, 
and may you may they know that this house I have built bears your name. I just want to think what a fantastic thought that is for the moment, especially for those of us that the Jews would have considered Gentile foreigners. You know, the moment we turn our hearts toward God, wherever we're from, whatever our ethnicity, whatever our circumstances, whenever we call on the name of the Lord, he hears and wants to answer. I want to ask you this morning, have you ever wondered whether God hears you when you pray? Maybe you feel that your prayers aren't that great. Maybe you think that your words aren't eloquent enough. Is God even listening? Or maybe you just don't feel ready to make a full-on commitment to Jesus yet. Maybe you're not sure if you could go all in. Let me encourage you. Why don't you just turn towards your Heavenly Father and ask for his help, his presence and his forgiveness. Ask him to show you maybe something that you've glimpsed in other people, that they seem to have a certainty that you lack. If you're not quite there yet, ask him to guide you in your search for truth and ask him to help you to find Jesus for yourself. Now the scripture tells us that salvation is found in no one else. Jesus said himself, No one comes to the Father except through him. Jesus really is the only way to the Father. In the end, all of our answers to every question that we've ever asked are all found in Jesus. Every question that you ever ask spiritually will ultimately lead you back to him. But if you're praying to God, I want you to know this morning he hears you, even if you don't understand it all. If you've got questions, he wants you to find answers. If you've been seeking the truth, you will find it. If you seek it with all your heart, that's a promise from Scripture. Seek Jesus with all your heart. You will find him. Or maybe be found by him. So my prayer this morning, I'm going to close, is that we might come to know him better that we might be changed by encounters with Jesus and that we might all experience those moments of imminence, encounter the transcendent presence with us, where we glimpse again the glory beyond this earthly reality, beyond church, beyond the structure and into the spiritual truth that God is bigger and far beyond anything that we could ever imagine. And then finding that maybe we can learn to utter our own prayers of awe and wonder. Flipping heck. Let's pray together, shall we? Lord, as we come to you, we want to thank you that we come to a God whose ear is inclined towards us. And when we talk to you, Lord, you hear the words that we speak. In fact, your scripture tells us, Lord, that you know what we're going to say even before the words are on our lips, because you know our heart. Just going back, Lord, that prayer is a heart-to-heart communication. But thank you, Lord, that it's not just our heart to yours, it's your heart to ours that you have loved us beyond measure 
since the creation of the world. And Lord, you long to bring us back into a place of fellowship and relationship with you when we can know your presence with us. We can know you walking with us in the cool of the evening, in the garden paradise that you have created for us. Thank you that whoever we are, wherever we are, whether we're far away or near, whether we consider ourselves one of your people or a foreigner, an outsider, Lord, you are still longing to hear from us. And thank you that the invitation is to come to seek and we will find the fullness of our salvation in Jesus Christ, your Son. Amen.